Welcome, everybody. If you are listening to this recording, this is episode one of The Roycast, a podcast about the HBO series Succession. My name is Brendan. I will be joined each week by my co-hosts, Kate. Hey, everyone. And Gabby. Hey, guys. So the way this is going to work generally is that we're going to, uh, we've actually already recorded a series of episodes recapping the first season of the show uh, leading up to the second season, which we intend to recap as it goes and release one episode of this show per episode of the series. Uh, But I wanted to just go ahead and talk a little bit about, you know, why we wanted to do this uh, before we get started. We have a, a special guest joining us to talk about the pilot episode Uh, But I wanted to just give a little bit of background about why we're doing this. So the three of us, um, Kate, Gabby, and myself, I think met uh, online when we joined sort of a group chat to talk about the show The Leftovers on HBO, which uh, Kate initiated. Once that show ended, a bunch of us kind of stuck around, watched other things, talked about other things. And when Succession came along and the three of us watched it, it, I think, took over our collective consciousness and dominated our conversations to the point where we were like, well, we should probably just record something and at least get something productive out of all the time we spend talking about this thing. You know, I had never heard of it. It was probably maybe the fourth episode it aired. Brendan, you had said to me, Kate, I think you'd like the show Succession. And so I watched the pilot um, not knowing who was in it or what it was about. And, and I really enjoyed it after the second episode or like even after the first few minutes in the second episode, I was like, okay, you know, this is it. I love this show. Second half of the season, I think, is some of the best television I've seen in a really long time. Yeah, so I probably watched the pilot for the first time mid-July last summer. I definitely was a, a little bit skeptical to dive in at first because, well, first of all, the, the, the trailer was not very compelling, which is something that <laughs> most people seem to be um, in agreement about. And HBO seems to be having some issues with that because I felt the same way about the trailer for Big Little Lies season one, which I ended up adoring. And I'll always end up thinking of it as a standalone May series. We're not going to talk about season two of Big Little Lies. <laughs> So, you know, I, I was a little bit skeptical, but, you know, enough people whose opinions I value kind of convinced me to try it. And I liked the tone, the acting, the writing right off the bat. I like the McKay direction. I think it's, it's interesting and, and, and engaging. I know some people don't agree, but I did find some parts of the pilot a little bit stilted, but it stayed with me enough that a few days later I, I rewatched it. I kept going. And then by episode two, I kind of realized what they were trying to do and It was actually the comedy that really hooked me in episode two, one scene in particular with the four kids. And I sort of stuck around for the ensuing drama. I think by episode six or seven, it really became clear how serious Succession takes its drama. And that's when it really felt like it was something different and special. And I think as someone who doesn't necessarily gravitate towards like fantasy style shows, I think the initial and ongoing draw of Succession for me is that it's at its core a a show about family. And I think Succession is HBO's first big family drama since Six Feet Under, which is sort of the first like prestige television show that I fell in love with. Six Feet Under is very distinct in its style and, and storytelling, but there's definitely parallels, especially with the attention paid to family dynamics and how the show tackles pretty heady concepts with a lot of skill, like loyalty and family, issues of drugs, addiction, mental illness, trauma. I hope to compare the two someday with, with one of you, especially I think it 
provides an interesting contrast to Six Feet Under is matriarch driven. And, you know, there's lots of other shows that Succession has been compared to. And I'm, I'm sort of, I'm open to this. And I know for me, like, from the get-go with the pilot, it felt very Veep-esque. I can see some of the Arrested Development similarities, but I do think Succession is kind of a wholly unique project and a very ambitious one at that because it can't really rely on straight satire or stylized world-building or any sort of, like, overarching sci-fi premise. I'm thinking of, you know, The Leftovers, which is a show that we all loved, and we want to talk about, like, recent prestige shows, Handmaid's Tale, Game of Thrones. I know Succession has kind of been postulated as Game of Thrones... Uh, replacement for HBO but I think by not having high concept techniques to lean on you really have to like dig deep into your character's inner lives and that's a tough ask when your characters are essentially like representing some of the worst people in the world but it's grounded in realism and I think it's sort of an amalgam of everything I love it's personality driven it's high drama quick-witted there's the droll British humor complex and realistic interpersonal dynamics and that's like a very tough spectrum of elements to integrate and get right not to mention that all these elements are playing out against the backdrop of like very serious macro societal issues so again you can't really just like invent some sort of outlandish gimmick or device to propel the plot it has to be grounded and it could very easily fall into a trap of becoming like soapy or relying on tropes or too self-aggrandizing which it doesn't, thanks to incredibly sharp writing, acting, and this formidable combination of both drama and humor, which I think is a huge draw for a lot of people to the show, um, and leads me to one of my favorite quotes from Jesse Armstrong about the show. In a New York Times article, he says that a drama which is too sonorous and self-important is not a true representation of the world, because in a way it gives too much credence to the way that most powerful people portray themselves. The reality is that everyone has frustrations and personal relationship problems which are comic, and if you exclude that, I think you're telling a lie. I think it's, that's an incredibly like astute foundation from which the show kind of builds out its characters and storylines, and you know, the truth is that wealthy people, especially when that wealth is born out of and contingent on familial ties, wealthy, wealthy people are often buffoons at best and violent sadists at worst. And uh, the way in which we as a society lionize and glorify wealth and wealthy people is very frustrating. And it's frustrating to see that on TV shows. I'm not really even speaking politically, although that is important, but really just like a commentary on the human condition. And I think Succession really successfully keeps people engaged because there is a certain aspect of shouldn't Freud, like that you're seeing these monsters suffer, but... I think a lot of viewers find themselves kind of identifying with certain characters and their insecurities. So I think in this moment, like especially where we are politically, it's really valuable to tap into this um, discussion of wealth and, and sort of the hollowness that is born from it. Yeah, and we'll I know we'll talk more in the ensuing episodes about, you know, what we kind of get out of it and some of the sort of grand theory of the show and what it's doing. I will take this opportunity, since this is the first episode, to go ahead and plug um, an article I have in the current issue of Cinemascope magazine. They were kind enough to let me write for their TV column about Succession, and lays out, I think, some of the the thoughts on the show that we cover in some subsequent episodes. I think in general, one of the reasons I thought that it would be, you know, not just fun for us, but actually useful to do a podcast about this is because if you're someone like me, who has spent a lot of time, arguably too much time, talking about TV on the internet for many years. You may have noticed over the last decade or so that I can think of that I've been online, a sort of decline in the economy 
or a, a contraction of the economy of what gets written about, right? Fewer shows are covered as the number of shows proliferates. Fewer shows are covered week to week. So a lot of that comes down to, you know, simply what's collecting eyeballs. And if a show is relatively low rated as Succession was when it started and critics don't really know what to make of it, um, there's just not really a lot of writing about it. This was something that we talked about and that was frustrating me as I was watching the show and going, wow, this is this great original series that's happening and it's really not being covered or analyzed or discussed in the way that I would like or that I think it deserves. So I think some of that is starting to shift as people started to find the show towards the end of the first season and there's a bit more coverage happening now in the run up to the second season. But what I want this show to be is sort of an avenue to get some smart, articulate people together to talk about their views on the show, people who might not otherwise have the chance to cover it or be published talking about it, might not otherwise have a forum to do so, and just kind of be able to start some good conversation about what we all think is a very uh, original and worthwhile series. So to that end, for our first episode, for this pilot episode, in which we wanted to talk a bit about the work of series creator Jesse Armstrong to sort of lay the groundwork for what this show is doing and how it does it. We have invited on an uh, acolyte of the works of Jesse Armstrong. He is a writer and podcaster best known as the founding producer and often co-host of Chapo Trap House. With his co-hosts, he is an author of the Chapo Guide to Revolution, and he joins us today. His name is Brendan James. Hello, Brendan. Howdy. Great to have you with Welcome. us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. So as I said, a big reason we invited you is because uh, I knew from reading your writing and from you know listening to Chapo that, that the works of Jesse Armstrong loom very large in your imagination. Is that fair to say? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm not really on it anymore, but my Twitter handle, a lot of people ask me what my Twitter handle is or what it means rather. It's deep beige. And I think that's, I don't know if Armstrong wrote that insult, but that's from the thick of it. Uh, when he was still writing on it, when instead of calling someone Deep Blue, they called him Deep Beige. And I just thought it was a short and sharp little screen name, and I used it. But that's that betrays the connection I have to all these shows. So was The Thick of It the first Armstrong project that you watched? No, actually. The first one was Peep Show. I started watching Peep I, I feel like everyone knows Peep Show now, and not to sound like insufferable about it, but I, I, I started watching it when it was still sort of unknown to most people, at least that, that I knew or of my own age in America. It's like back in 2009. And I just saw it, I came across it on YouTube and I didn't really understand what was going on at first because if your listeners don't know, it's got a very particular style and uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful original thing, but I was sort of just like suspicious of it at first as to w whether it was funny or not. And then I, I just got really hooked. I saw the thick of it a couple years later and I saw some of the other things we'll be talking about uh, in short time after that. Yeah, so to lay the groundwork, I guess, for what we're talking about, like Jesse Armstrong, who created Succession, um, also created the sitcom Peep Show, and he is a frequent collaborator of other sort of British comedians, uh, Armando Iannucci, who is the creator of the political British sitcom The Thick of It, 
and its sort of American counterpart, Veep, for, also for HBO. And Armstrong also collaborated with comedian Chris Morris a number of times, especially on their feature film, Four Lions, uh, which I, I think we all watched in preparation for this. I guess I'm most interested in, in thinking about Peep Show is how it connects to these other projects, which are all kind of far more political yeah. in their sort of subject, right? Yeah. I don't know if you can draw a line there or if there is a productive one to be drawn. Uh, I, I think there's definitely the most obvious line to draw is in the dialogue uh, and, and the, the, the writing itself. We can talk about this regarding succession because the dialogue is so important to what makes the show good. But in general, Armstrong, and again, this goes without saying maybe for this whole episode, there's a lot of collaborators that Armstrong has worked with. And I'm not trying to say he's the genius who came up with every single good thing about any of these shows or films, but he certainly is a, is a common denominator in all of them. So I'm going to, I'm going to speak as though we can assume he, he uh, wrote a lot of the stuff that was such great sparkling dialogue. And, and that's a commonality between peep show and say succession or four lions or the thick of it is the well of references and the kind of flow and almost poetry of the insults or the nicknames or the strange spiral of negative or, or paranoid rants. Those are all in peep show. And, and as much as they're in any of the more high octane political farces that he's done. And so uh, beyond that, you're right. It's, it's a little bit of an outlier because it's just essentially the odd couple, a little bit more depraved and a little bit more modern, but it's, it's uh, one other thing I would say links the two is that, Peep Show does center very unlikable and that's not to say unrelatable characters. They're they're bad people, and uh, that would certainly be an easy thing to say about the protagonists of everything from the thick of it to Four Lions to Succession. So I would say the dialogue and the penchant for a shitty protagonist is is what links all these things. Yeah, and Peep Show, just to outline it for anybody who's hasn't seen the show, basically follows these two fellows played by uh, British comedians Mitchell and Webb, Mark and Jez, who share a flat uh, on and off throughout the series. Jez is a bit of a unemployable slacker, musician, etc., while Mark is sort of a middle manager and has pretensions of great literature you know he's a student of history etc and the thing that occurred to me watching it in preparation for this was just that mark is sort of the id i think of some of these these writers like armstrong and ianucci these guys who are very sure. successful comedians but who are also fascinated you know with history in the world etc if only to sort of make fun of it yeah but the other thing that connects all of these is that you know they these shows like you know peep show and thick of it and especially even for lions um which is about uh you know terrorism is this idea of drawing comedy out of people who are not just unsympathetic or unlikable but actively you know engaged in doing awful things and committing terrible crimes what do you make of kind of this sort of mission statement that these writers have given themselves that they want to be writing about the people who are carrying out you know like the worst things going on in the world yeah that's uh that that's something that struck me with succession that that made me realize how close it was going to be in spirit to these other shows is um for whatever reason armstrong is very comfortable and very good and his collaborators as well are very good at writing and crafting social critique, but centering the perpetrators of the evils uh, rather than the victims most of the time. And we can talk about a moment in the pilot that actually sort of 
subverts that a little bit. Uh, it sort of stands out, actually, compared to the rest of the show. But uh, normally, in all these cases, I would even include Peep Show. Like, Mark and Jeremy are not necessarily the worst people in the world. They're certainly powerless compared to any member of the Roy family. And they're not even necessarily the worst people in the show, but they're not good people. They're not upstanding citizens. They're not particularly uh, thoughtful friends or or uh, partners uh, romantically and you could tell he was armstrong and, and co were cutting their teeth maybe on that smaller scale before they got around to these bigger projects and i i really enjoy it because it's essentially you know it's we're we're in the era of hate watching stuff and i think that it's a dramatic approach toward keeping your attention and 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 letting you become sort of engrossed and obsessed with how much you you hate the and, and loathe, but also probably in some levels identify with these people who are um, carrying out either socially ignoble uh, things in their day to day or on the scale of the Roy family or the politicians in the thick of it, actual like life destroying policies or business and socioeconomic trauma. And it's it's just it's it's addictive and it, it it's I don't think any less valid than you know, agitprop or storytelling that centers the victims, of which there's been a long history of, I mean, since any kind of satire uh, was first written. So it, it, for me, it's, it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's just a nice kind of different uh, taste or angle to, to, to make these criticisms. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a good reason for that, right? You know, like, it's hard to make comedy based on people who are, as you say, the the victims of terrible crimes, right? right. Um, it's definitely a lot funnier to, I think, deal with people who have some agency, but are humiliated or thwarted in other ways. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing that the thick of it does, this might be oversimplifying it, um, but I think it's essential insight is that the people who, the people who you might think would be the most successful political players, you know, in the arena of national and world politics are not necessarily people who are super cunning. They're just people who are willing to debase themselves yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. And that's where that's where it draws its comedy from is, you know, uh, Malcolm Tucker, played by Peter Capaldi. You know, he's this very terrifying and intimidating spin doctor to a lot of people. But there are plenty of moments where you see that all of this bluster that he has is just that's basically all he has. All he can yeah. do is just kind of scream at people. And when that doesn't work, he kind of comes up short. One, one, one last uh, example that I, um, either complicates it a bit or whatever enriches it is I think Four Lions is an interesting kind of uh, hybrid where the protagonists are, <laughs> they're aspiring jihadists, which is not, you know, doesn't fall into the necessarily the good person category. Uh, you could debate that maybe depending on your politics, but uh, let's say it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, um, controversial uh, to, to, to anoint these particular guys as protagonists, but they're again they're relatively powerless and that's of course you know half of the comedy is how uh inept they are at carrying out what could be a very very dark and nasty and depressing subject matter um and so that's a film where it's a really brilliant balancing of clearly mocking and presenting these characters as unsympathetic for what their goal is but also recognizing that they're not motivated as some kind of inexplicable dark force within them, certainly not because they're Muslim or because they're 
immigrants or the children of immigrants. It's it's trying to say th- this is a horrible and at times comedically you know absurd problem we have now because of much larger forces at work that uh, these idiots. Uh, are trying to overcome in, in, in any way that they think makes them look the coolest or feel the most empowered. And there's a great scene at the end of that film where it pulls back from just these guys and you get to see a, a, a fairly obvious unsympathetic portrait of the British government and uh, things like torture and stuff that, that starts to you know give you a better perspective of what the actual point of the movie was. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the interesting things is, as you say, these guys are like all perpetrators, not just in Four Lions, but in these various projects. But I think they all feel like victims. Yeah. Even though I would say one of the draws of all these shows is they're all so relatable. And maybe that says something really terrible about me. Um, It does. But... But like that's that's kind of what like kept me going. Like Peep Show, oh my God, it's just like you know they're awful. They know they're ignoring the real issues they need to do deal with, and I don't know, you know, all these terrible things. And but I don't know, I you know I can relate to them, and um, you know want to be jihadists, of course. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, absolutely can relate to that. But you know, I, I again, I think that they feel like they're victims. For whatever reason. Yeah. And also, again, I, I think they're totally relatable. Like, I don't know if I hate watch so much as I, I don't know. Well, you're definitely right uh, uh, with regard even, I mean, to the Roy family. Everyone from Logan on down, in some way, views themselves as a victim, whether it's because one of the members of the family is slighting them or because they feel like they're being, you know, persecuted by, you know, there's that great scene where Logan gets hit with a piss balloon or whatever. And in a lot of contexts, you'd feel bad for that character. And you kind of maybe, just through the sheer commitment you've made to the show, you, you don't l- like necessarily relish seeing him covered in piss. But then you, ha- you kind of you, you realize like he is way, way more of a threat to any decency in the world than the guy who threw that piss balloon. And you sort of uh, check yourself in sympathizing with what he thinks is a world that's out to get him because then he goes home to his giant mansion and and you know that's all revealed as so incredibly you know egomaniacal and 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 uh, detached from reality at least with mark and jeremy at least they have a pretty shitty you know low to to middle class uh existence or the four lions guys at least they're just a bunch of confused idiots who are seizing on islam you know, as, as a way to feel like rock stars or, or important people. With the Roy family, it's I, I find it much harder to suspend my disbelief with regard to their any kind of victimhood. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if the joke will work now, but in regards to Four Lions, this is not my confused face. <laughs> you, said, you said they're confused, but bro... This is yeah. not my confused face. That's that. That's true. Uh, yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, and and I guess Logan is definitely an exception in that. I don't at all feel relate, relate to Logan, but your team he's Kendall, kind of, right? Oh, team Kendall, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I'd love to talk about Kendall later because I there's an interesting. I feel like the show got a little bit. I know they have to have one main protagonist that you have to so- somewhat be rooting for, but mm-hmm. boy, oh boy, I he makes it really hard because I really, I really just see him as Trump Jr. Yeah, 
before. Well, like we love talking about Kendall, so. Okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll chip in. I'll chip in. <laughs> yeah, later. I mean, he's um, just constantly taking hits left and right, and you don't really know like whether to feel bad for him or not. Okay, just speaking about that whole idea of, of hate watching and you don't really feel like you're hate watching because I don't really feel like I'm hate watching it either. <laughs> Kieran Culkin concurs. Um, in a GQ article, he said, why is it that I identify with this guy, meaning his character, Roman Roy, so fucking much? I still don't know why and I don't want to know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think there's some intangible element. Um, sure, sure. So, just it just handles it really tactfully in a way that um, you know you can you can still sort of understand that the trappings of wealth um, and and power in these people's lives are able to afford them incredible privileges and they you know exploit that and do horrible things with it. But one of the reasons that the show is so successful is that it really kind of pathologizes people who are invested in obtaining and mm-hmm. and, and maintaining wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that yeah. sort of serves to um, bring out the sort of emerging themes as the season continues of, you know, trauma, maladaptive co- coping mechanisms, family dynamics. So, you know, I think it's complicated, but I think that's that's part of the reason why the show is just, it's so intoxicating. Mm-hmm. E- even more than, than any of the family members, uh, immediate family like Kendall, I think Tom is the most to me the most um relatable example or sympathetic example of that uh ignoring for the moment what he ends up having to cover up which he is going to hell for obviously he they establish him as like he came from if i'm not wrong he came from kind of humble midwestern roots and he's obviously pathetic for you know dedicating his whole life to infiltrate the wealthy uh, stratosphere and all that but you know there's moments at least in a character like him and you're right there are moments with any of these characters even if they're e- even if it's logan you could there are moments where you can re- you, you can relate to something about their their humanity even if on the whole they're bad but tom is kind of for me one of those characters except maybe greg who's the real everyman in in the context of the show <laughs> Like mm-hmm. he's he's kind of trapped by his own lack of imagination of what makes life rich and fulfilling because he's just said, well, it's money, and if I have to marry into this family and get treated like shit basically every day by most of them, that's what I'll do, and that's that's tragic. And he wasn't born into it, and he you know he he wasn't uh, eating from a silver spoon his whole life. So you're right. I mean, I I I I don't mean to be saying I just watched the show to laugh at their misfortunes. Although again, especially with Tom, I love watching his misfortunes. It's just that you you know that you can't ever like fully treat these characters as some sort of like redeemable uh, subject matter. And I think we all have a sense that the show will not end well for anybody in the same way that the thick of it did not end well for anybody. Four Lions sure as hell uh, didn't end well for anybody. And that the Roy family, when we remember they represent the Murdochs and the and the Sinclairs and the and the uh, purveyors of kind of everything that's wrong with America, they won't have any kind of happy or even sort of uh, lukewarm ending and that's probably a good thing i don't know those guys are all doing pretty well yeah well at least in the show we can hope that they won't though maybe (laughs) you're right maybe you're right that you're you know i'm I'm speaking too soon because uh the thick of it did sort of uh in in the loop really left you with the feeling that all the bad people will succeed so you're right oh yeah yeah, and uh, so what you're getting at is, I think, um, well, this is the first episode of the show, so maybe I should lay out kind of my theory of this a little bit. So we talked about how this kind of represents sort of a, a big step up 
for these sort of Morris Armstrong Iannucci productions in terms of, you know, the level of like, quote unquote, bad guy you're talking about. Mm. You know, these are the people who actually control the levers of power in the world as opposed to people who are, you know, middle managers or wannabes in these other shows. But it also represents a big step up in terms of the level of drama. And by drama, I mean that you are expected, I think, to take these characters seriously in in terms of their sort of inner struggles and their inner lives. They're not simply kind of figures of, you know, comic fun that you occasionally might feel a bit of pity for. The inner struggle of somebody like a Kendall Roy, I mean, that is really, you know, the meat of the show, I think. And it's the thing that keeps me um, fascinated by it. Um, Gabby compared the show to Six Feet Under. The show that I think of the most in relation to Succession is The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Not just because The Sopranos is, you know, one of the shows I think about more than almost any other, um, <laughs> but because what The Sopranos for me was really about was, well, it's about many things, um, but it's a sort of tragic narrative in which these characters are not aware that they are living in this kind of cosmic joke in which their uh, actions can only carry them so far, mm-hmm. and they are continually kind of wandering this circumscribed path where they never experience any real growth and their relationships don't actually mean anything Mm -hmm. um, because they are all sort of circumscribed by this logic of you know the mafia in which you know you have these guys who are your best friends but they may decide to kill you if they're not making enough money that is the experience of what love relationships family are like for the roys they don't know anything else Mm -hmm. and Kendall experiences over the course of this first season is this sort of circular odyssey. You know, you can compare it to kind of um, Christopher's experience in The Sopranos, where he sort of grows to understand implicitly, even though he may not articulate this to himself ever, um, because it might be too awful to admit, um, that he is completely trapped by his family name, and he can't ever be anything but a member of this family that's destroying the world. Oh, sure, Um, yeah. That's a great that, point. And that's what that's what makes the show fascinating to me. It's not that these people have, you know, deep down good in them somewhere that you know, human emotions. It's that they can't be anything other than what they are. Um, mm-hmm. and they have glimmers of self awareness, but they'll never get out of it. Um, that's what's really tragic about it is you see them sort of circling these moments of realization that inevitably return them to square one. I think of uh this isn't uh, I really think spoiling anything, especially if you just talk about it vaguely, but uh, Christopher and the Sopranos trying to uh, break into screenwriting or Hollywood or whatever, you know, time yes. after time, uh, that that's a lot like uh, Kendall uh, attempting to, you know, suddenly throw some VC money into the art world or whatever, you know, like there's no chance. And it is his name. I mean, with Christopher, it's mm-hmm. obviously his name, mm-hmm. but then with, with the Roy's, you know, there's, the, there's a, that great, uh, exchange where, you know, it would be as if sh- you're marrying Hitler and you're Mrs. Hitler. And in both cases, there's a literal example of your name being a problem, but then beyond the the name itself, it's what you are about and what you've done and what you represent. And there's no way Christopher would ever be able to, beyond like terrorizing John Favreau or uh, any, you know, unfortunate celebrity who wants to like r- brush arms with a mafia guy to get some tips on a script... Christopher can never actually inhabit another world. He's trapped in that one. That's yeah. There's a lot of parallels there. Yeah. So we can get into the pilot and talk a little bit more about our uh, our buddy Kendall because uh, the main action of the pilot is to kind of establish this central father son conflict where 
the the day in question is Logan's birthday. He's intending to step down from his CEO role and announce that he's handing the reins over to Kendall. But he sort of uh, arranges a test for Ken that he uh, doesn't realize is a test and he fails and decides that uh, Ken's not ready and decides to remain aboard uh, as CEO indefinitely. By the end of the episode, of course, Logan has a stroke and is taken out of commission, which means that some kind of power transfer will take place, but we don't know exactly what that will be yet. But the action there kind of takes us to, you know, the start of the episode where Ken is trying to arrange this this big deal with a new media company, Volter. And just as an aside, Brendan, I wanted to get your take on as what somebody could that who has company, what could that company be representing? Yeah, uh, as uh, as somebody who's traversed the kind of new media uh, landscape or wasteland, um, I don't know if you picked up on any specific references to, I mean, let's say Gawker or other websites. <laughs> in this yeah, yeah, Walter. It's it's mostly Gawker or r- rather. Uh, Gizmodo Media Group now, I guess, but it's some probably some like uh, non uh, Peter Thiel infected version of Gawker where it's still on the rise and uh, it it knows how to talk to the younger demographic. And as Kendall keeps saying, it's um, not a website; it's a portfolio of uh, media or content and video, blah blah blah. Like uh, I-, I love all the incredibly accurate and cringeworthy like uh, corporate media speak that they work into the show when when Kendall is is trying to you know smooth over the the uh, generalizations of Logan. I think he calls it a gay little website, and, yeah, Kendall, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Kendall is like Kendall is uh, all pivoting to the show. Yeah, it's uh, that's that that's a wonderful touch. And yes, uh, you're right uh, that me, my my career or one time career of being a media journalist, there were a lot of little kind of Easter eggs in the show in that regard. And I think Volter is is some version of um, Gizmodo Media Group or Gawker Media. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking yeah. to um, the idea of like that kind of media group sort of being at the forefront of new tech and and disruptive language, Kendall tries very very hard and often fails to employ this kind of ethos in the way that he looks at business. Um, but he's very much constricted by insecurity in that. I mean, I we know that Kendall's gone to business school. He has all the consultants speak down. Um, mm. You know, he, he understands how business works, but what he really misses is sort of the the human aspect, and and some of that does speak to you know his flaws as a, as a as a person, which we'll get into. But we see him kind of um, in the immediately in the first scene try and sort of posture as this cool guy, um, and come off just really really embarrassingly so. Can I just say that the yeah. uh, that 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 first scene? Because now, if we're walking through the pilot a bit, I'll, I'll just say that the first scene with him, besides the the cold open with uh, Logan pissing, the first scene is. Uh, I mean, it kind of had me there. Like, I, I think that's still one of my favorite scenes in the whole in the whole series. Rob Yang is so good. He's good yeah. in in all of his appearances, but particularly that first yeah. little. Uh, confrontation where he comes across as kind of just like a almost like a square you know kind of um, get along go along type of guy when he's initially in the meeting but then as soon as they're outside he just Mm. annihilates Kendall and the way that Kendall says uh, no this will still work out the way he turns to him and just goes no it won't is so ice cold and like a perfect distillation of how this uh, and I I was going to use this phrase uh, eventually but this fail son in Kendall 
yeah. I really do think that the character of the fail son is a big part of, I mean, uh, a lot of family dramas, but particularly this one. He is so out of his depth, he, he, despite all of his father's money and what he technically, you know, the, the heights he's technically, um, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 standing on compared to this much smaller company, he, he has no ability to really fight or claw. As, as Logan probably correctly points out later, um, yeah. no ability to fight with these guys. I was going to actually say that scene, you know, when uh, Logan and Kendall have kind of their face down after he learns that um, his dad's not going to be leaving, you know, and, and he's like... Logan, you know, says to Kendall, like, I know you've read a lot of business books or whatever. And he's like, but sometimes, and previously in, in that dialogue, you know, Kendall had said to Logan, talking about his exchange with Falter, you know, I didn't want to make it a big dick competition. And as Logan's like shutting Kendall down, you know, he's like, you've read a lot of books, whatever, you know, sometimes it is a big dick competition. You know, and yeah. that's that's like exactly the piece that Kendall's really missing is like power hungry BDE. You know. Yeah, it's like it's a ruthless. <laughs> <thing>. like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, like we see in that in that scene after Logan has um, proposed to his four children, Kendall being the oldest of his second marriage, he has one older son from a first marriage, Connor, played by. Alan Ruck of uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. My favorite character, by the way. (laughs) Oh, he's so good. He's great, yeah. On some days, I think that may be the best performance on the show. He's he's less directly involved in the business, but um, what Logan proposes is essentially a change of trust to incorporate his wife, who is not the mother of any of the children, into the trust, and then also the news that he's not going to be stepping down, and, and, you know, Kendall is just sort of thrown into this spiral, and I think the scene between the two of them is just a really important first step in establishing this kind of old-school, new-school sort of dynamic and approach to business and relationships that you know, sort of undergirds the entire show and that can and in that room, um, excuse me, in that Kendall is, like we said, very, very much business school speak, um, pivot to video, thinks that he's, you know, going to transform the company that, you know, he says all our, all our graphs go down, there's no growth. Mm-hmm. Whereas Logan is very much invested in sort of this old school, almost kind of Trumpian fuck you way Mm -hmm. of doing business you know he mentions at the end of that fight you know they said that i think it's some line about how they said everybody's gonna oh everybody's gonna go out or everybody's gonna stay in i forgot what it is but yeah he says he says everyone uh, was gonna you know stay in with video cassettes but they actually do still want to go out and and uh now everyone pretends that it was obvious the whole time or whatever so it's kind of asserting that that it's sort of these ruthless business instincts and interpersonal posturing and big dick energy that really um, makes you successful. And, and, and I think that's really important to establish from the get-go because it informs sort of the trajectory of particularly the relationship between Logan and Kendall um, mm. and what goes on with the business for the rest of the show. Logan, like, you know, leads as a reactionary. You know, we talked a little bit about this later on, but, you know, like, it's not enough to for each side, like, when doing a deal to, you know, get what they want. There has to be some form of suffering, some <laughs> form of defeat. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it, it's just it. not enough. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And and he thinks that's a quality. I mean, here's the irony, you know, that's that's lacking in Kendall. And that's what makes Kendall, you know, more appealing is that he's not that way, at least initially started the series. But yeah, Logan, exactly. It's it's a big dick competition and you've got to have your enemy suffer. He's the true president deals. <laughs> what? Well, uh, just just to two things on that, and I, I'm I'm not trying to uh, keep us off the the trail of the actual point by point uh, plot with the pilot. I just think it does it, it does good. connect with that moment. That uh, the first thing is that, I, as far as I'm concerned, I mean maybe people would disagree. I think that if we understand this to be presenting the world of like disgusting media mogul like multinational business as it is, Logan is right. Like there, it's not a world that responds to as we often like to mock. I think in you know anyone who's left of anything, you know, the idea of News Corp with a smiley face or Target or Walmart, you know, holding your hand and saying like some of the great jokes later on in the series, like the diversity video stuff like that. I mean, that's all a lie. Like that, this world, not to say it's a good thing, it doesn't work like that. So Logan is actually correct, and Kendall is the one, and and any kind of younger advisors he has are, are are the ones mistaken about what you can do in the confines of as you guys said this horrible reality he's been born into if you remember you know jerry uh who's a more s sympathetic character than most of the the ghouls that's the surround logan she says if he's smiling in a later episode about that deal you mentioned kate she says if he's smiling yeah. it's no good if he's smiling so she also is, she's not a, uh, she's not Trump, you know, she's just kind of doing her job, but she knows that these are the rules of this particular awful ecosystem. And I just think that's kind of an important fatalistic aspect to Kendall's whole uh, ambition to be, you know, media 2.0 or whatever, it does, at least in the uh, negotiating or h human factor, it's never really going to happen. He, he is going to have to either become more like his father or we'll see him, you know, leave uh, and, and maybe have a much better life outside of this entire world. And the second thing I just wanted to say is the, uh, the actual, not to get too, you know, uh, pedantic about this stuff, but like the, the actual media strategy of Royco is, is interesting to me just as kind of like a finer point because we see that without spoiling too much about further episodes, Logan has an ambition to stay grounded in old media. I think it's really spoiling a lot to point out that's a huge difference, difference between him and Kendall. That confrontation in the dining room pretty much establishes that. Kendall wants to do websites and tech and all this other stuff. <clears throat> and Logan uh, wants to stay in local TV and, you know, broadcasts and stuff like this. And I, I, I just noticed throughout watching it, again, I don't think Logan is wrong. I mean, we, we've all seen the incredible, like, bubble within a bubble that digital media has been. And who's to really say, like, yes, of course, as Kendall says, the charts do go down. But over what period of time? You know, like the, the generation that is still going to watch local TV and a lot of the stuff that Logan values and traffics in, it's going to be around for a little while longer. It's not a complete grift in terms of, you know, revenue. And uh, we've all just witnessed, I think, just as, as younger people, the promise and, uh, you know, Kendall style gloss that's put on tech and uh, new media is uh, punctuated every six months by, you know, a hundred layoffs at, at some exciting new company that was being talked up two years earlier. So again, like the, the series, I don't think actually smartly 
Uh, I don't think it actually even presents Logan's strategy or, or his version of Royko as some kind of dinosaur thing, the way that Roman and Kendall tend to paint it as. I, I think that it it's agnostic on it, um, but 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 a viewer might might recognize some uh, some problems with the uh, media 2.0 position of 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 uh, the younger um, uh, Roy children. Yeah, Brendan, I think it's a really important point that you brought up that. Logan's conception of the world and his industry isn't necessarily wrong. It might be obscene to us and difficult to swallow, but it's it sort of reminds me of of Trump in that so many people were convinced that we were just too good of a country, too virtuous mm-hmm. <laughs> of a population right. to elect somebody like Trump that he's just crass and vulgar and you know, a horrific person who represents the worst, darkest forces in our country. And he won. <laughs> and, you know, he, I think a lot of people, you know, not to get too deep into into left politics or anything, but I mean, it is relevant to the show and, and relevant to, to, you know, our current moment in, in time, that a lot of people think that you can kind of, similarly to Kendall, just put a nice new, you know, smiley face on um, a system that is, you know, fundamentally built to exploit yeah. most vulnerable. And so yeah. it sort of has <laughs> echoes of, you know, neoliberalism with yep. what Kendall's trying to do when it's actually, you know, the system that needs complete upending. And so long as Kendall thinks he can, you know, navigate new media and incorporate uh, savvy business strategies, um, you know, he's just going to keep finding himself on this hamster wheel, which, you know, we see um, very carefully and um, powerfully kind of portrayed in different ways throughout the course of the show. Yeah. So that that that, that first scene, just when he's in the in his limo or in, in his car, listening to that horrible rap. And uh, I love I love uh, the, Come on, the Beastie Boys. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't enjoy the uh, that that era of, of Beastie Boys. But uh, when, when he's um, listening to it and it's and, and it's the actual um, like like soundtrack, but then it suddenly cuts out and it's just him and his headphones and you don't actually mm-hmm. hear the bat. And it, it's it's a real moment of like utter humiliation for that character just like wherever he's about to walk into he just is so obviously unprepared and is and is uh, floating on the privilege and the you know uh glamour that his his uh as as rob yang's character says um his dad has basically uh you know um uh, purchased him his whole life and so i i love that first scene because as as we'll talk about with Kendall, I I basically do like seeing him humiliated and cut down to size, and it's difficult for me when the show humanizes him because I love that first scene so much. It's just a great rendition of of the rich fail son um, psyching himself up and then immediately getting the rug pulled out. Yeah, and we should mention that there are some hints of Kendall's background that that get dropped in this episode that may lead to some you know feelings of, of humanization sure um in that we know that he um is an addict or a former addict um as his father lovingly refers to it um he's, <laughs> he's just a few years out of the nut house yeah and that he's going through a divorce and those are things that you know are sort of 
that punctuate the show. But I think also, I don't know if we want to talk really quickly about that wonderful um, bathroom scene after the dining room confrontation where Kendall tears the bathroom apart and then <laughs> daintily sweeps up <laughs> the, the remains <laughs> and throws them out. And it's just, it's a really great use of the score. Um, and it's, uh, gives us a little bit of an insight into Kendall's sort of emotional life. Yeah, and I guess quick, uh, this is the quick sign of, sort of uh, formalism corner where we talk about the direction of the show, because that scene in particular is emblematic of a couple of tendencies, as some, fo- as some folks I know have had difficulty with. A, the direction in particular of Adam McKay, who directs the pilot and sort of set the tone for the series. McKay is an executive producer. He's directed films like The Big Short, and uh, Vice, which Brendan, you actually wrote an excellent um, review oh, of, by the way. Thank you. Um, I, and McKay has this directing style, which is, you know, visually it's somewhat erratic. There's a lot of quick zooms mm. and a lot of, you know, whip pans and things like that. Mm. And, you know, it's just like a constantly moving camera that doesn't always seem to have a clear intent behind it. So it, it can be a bit a bit frustrating to watch. And he also has this approach of what I've just kind of called structured improvisation of, you know, he'll always have a script and he'll always shoot the script, but he'll also, you know, as sort of an adept comedian and improviser and director of comedy who's worked with masters of improvisation, he'll always throw out new ideas, new directions to take a scene, etc., and get sort of different takes for each setup with different lines or different ways to approach the scene. And that combines in an interesting way with the tendencies, uh, in this case, of his lead actor, Jeremy Strong, who's a very kind of method guy, Mm -hmm. um, has an expressed preference to not rehearse scenes Mm. um, and to just sort of find it as he goes in. So I think they said that this scene was definitely an example of that, where they just sort of let Jeremy loose and kind of let him figure out where things were going to go, and he ended up tearing the set apart. Oh, in the bathroom? In the bathroom, yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that. I, I don't know a lot about, I mean, as Kate might be able to tell you, she suggested that not only I do this show with you guys, but that I watch the series before I do it, because I hadn't actually seen the series, even though everyone had told me to. And so I haven't had as much time to like find out the little nuggets and, and like read as many interviews. I've, I've read a couple interviews with Armstrong that, that were really interesting, but I didn't know that about about Jeremy Strong. Um, on the on the McKay point, I like McKay uh, a lot. And uh, you mentioned I've reviewed Vice. I I, I liked Vice. Uh, I had I had some. I basically think it could have gone further. Is my main uh, criticism. But uh, The Big Short is a pretty tight, like nice punchy bit of political comedy that that I think not a lot of people could have pulled off. Um, Love The I, Big Short. Yeah. It also, by the way, is much better than the source material that that Michael, uh, what's his name, wrote. Um, but the uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, at least I don't know. We could talk about that some other time. But uh, but with this, but with this show, the, I will say the one thing I noticed right away that I could do without, and they keep this style throughout the rest of the series, is the faux cinema verite stuff. The camera, I, I it's definitely in the Armstrong uh, canon. Most of these things have had some version of that peep show was literally supposed to be from the point of view of the the characters so it was very shaky cam uh to a degree uh the thick of it it was in that mid-2000s zone of like the office and and uh parks and rec and stuff that that was that was embracing that style so i kind of didn't mind it but i really wouldn't have minded it if succession had just gone for a straight uh more traditional 
and uh, sometimes it does dip into that type of cinematography. I don't really need there to be these little like fake zooms or, you know, like documentary style moments. It doesn't bother me too much. But when I first saw it, I realized I'm sort of over that style these days. But it's a it's a small stylistic quibble, I think, for me. Yeah. And for Succession, I think it's something that over the course of this season that tendency becomes a bit less pronounced. Mm-hmm. I think by the end of this season, they've reached, I think, a very interesting middle point between this, as you say, verite style, and something that is more sort of traditionally staged and blocked. But um, yeah, especially in this first episode, there are a couple of kind of ruptures in that style that you don't really ever see again that seem like something that was definitely abandoned, like there is a take in there where they are the siblings are greeting each other at Logan's uh, apartment and Roman makes some off-color joke uh, that ends in Shiv like glancing at the camera which is a very office-esque moment mm-hmm. and there's just not any other instance of that in the show the mm-hmm. closest I think is in the second episode when Shiv and Roman get in a fight on camera and the and the camera kind of swings dramatically and Tom seems to walk in on it mm-hmm. that also seems like it was kind of set up to be like a whoa we didn't mean for this to happen right. uh, moment and maybe you know as as I say if they kept that that structure of improvisation throughout that things really did unfold in an unexpected way there um, but they kind of get away from that um, uh, after that Mm-hmm. So just to talk briefly about some of the other characters, we mentioned uh, Tom, Tom Wamsgans, played by Matthew McFadden, who I think is actually, well, it's it's tough to rank, but I think is actually doing, I, I sh- let me say, the most original character in the yeah. most oh. original performance on the show. One, really um, wonderful. Which, you know, McFadden is interesting because he's a guy who's played a lot of kind of traditional costume drama parts. He was in the Joe Wright Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. Um, he played Darcy in Wright's uh, Pride and Prejudice, done a lot of sort of these uh, very traditional like theatrical Austenian roles. And now he's playing this guy who is like, as he's referred to in a later episode, a corn-fed basic um, <laughs> from the Midwest who has risen, you know, from started at the bottom uh, of Waystar Royco and has made his way to the point where he is now engaged uh, to, well, at this point he's merely dating, seriously dating uh, Siobhan, played by Sarah Snook, and is looking to get in the good graces of Logan by purchasing a meaningful birthday gift. <laughs> um, but Tom is this kind of, he's a very kind of classic Ianucian character in that he is a very obsequious person, you know, who's absolutely craven and deferential to authority, um, but also absolutely a vicious bully when opportunity <laughs> arises for it. Yes. What I think that McFadden draws out in that is just the, what, that would that would seem to indicate a degree of cynicism on his part, but what, what McFadden draws out is the sort of naive qualities in this character who really has this earnest puppy dog love for this woman who holds him in contempt and treats him as a lapdog. And I think you mentioned him as one of the more sympathetic characters, and I, I think I would agree in the sense that he is pitiful. He's somebody that you really, you know, kind of feel, you know, almost a painful amount of pity for throughout the yeah. show. Uh, it, the, 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 uh, bullying aspect of him, you're, uh, you're right to bring up, um, uh, the, the relationship it reminded me of, I mean, there's any number of, 
I mean, you could just go back to Shakespearean type of, you know, the the henchman of the henchman type dynamics where <laughs> he, he and Greg are obviously dealing in. But as far as recent TV, Deadwood's uh, dynamic between uh, E.B. Farnham and um, uh, what's his name? Um, Richardson. Richardson. Richardson, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorite. I mean, Deadwood uh, Succession uh, has, has definitely like gotten real close to my top ten, at least in recent years. But Deadwood's probably still my favorite show, and the in the dynamic between Farnham and Richardson is one of the funnest <laughs> things about that show. Where Eb will go out and get beaten down by Al or anyone else in the show, and then he'll go back to his quarters and give twice as hard a beating to Richardson, who luckily is so dumb, he doesn't even really understand what's going on. But in uh, Greg's case, it's a little more complicated because Greg is, while kind of an oaf, he does have some foresight and an individual agency. And that makes for perhaps uh, pl- plot wise an even more uh, interesting uh, henchman of a henchman dynamic. And I, I, I really like the Tom Greg uh, relationship and how uh, much intrigue there ends up actually being with it. Yeah, and I think um, I think a lot of that comes from you know there's in I think this is one of the critiques I had of the pilot and that this relationship doesn't feel it feels more like a bit in this episode than it, it does like sort of the flushed out dynamic that we get to later between Tom and Greg, which is founded I think in this very real sense that they're both insiders and people who are sort of in the family but not really of it and don't really belong to it. You know, Greg is, as you mentioned, I think the character who is the one that we meet as kind of what you might think of as an audience surrogate, somebody who is outside the family who is introduced to it and reacts with kind of bewilderment to their various, you know, ways and means. But But I think in a very, you know, along the lines of uh, what I think specifically of is Chris Addison's character in the in 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 the loop in particular, the -hmm. person who is your audience surrogate who introduces you to this sort of profane and bewildering uh, environment is somebody who turns out to be completely susceptible to the lull of power yeah. um, as Greg proves over the course of the show. Sure. By the way, I guess I should mention at this point, we mentioned it right before we started recording, but I am sort of maybe uncritically a big fan of the pilot and you guys, uh, you've already mentioned a couple of the stylistic points uh, where I'm interested to hear like parts where you think the pilot didn't work. I, I was hooked from the get go but uh, the Greg and uh, Tom thing in the pilot, I kind of give it a, a pass for not seeming fleshed out because they just met. And even though it does feel like a bit, I do think it's relatively believable that that's how it would start, you know, where he's just kind of razzing him and giving him shit and but kind of hoping that they will somehow, you know, end up as buddies who were uh, in some way smuggled into the family um, so I, I don't want to be an apologist for every, you know, kind of like, uh, embryonic moment of, of the pilot, but I, I buy that. And I think that they really start to bond in the hospital room or, or maybe more, uh, the episode after that. But, uh, at, at any rate, I was just going to say, I'm with you, Brendan. And I, Brendan J, I, I personally don't have huge issues with the style, the stylization of this episode or, um, the cinematography, I, I, I kind of like the quick zooms. I, you know, I, so I'm a fan of that. The issue I have with the pilot not being totally fleshed out in some of its character relationships is sort of an elementary one in which, you know, obviously it's got some sort of, you know, plot table setting work to do. 
and not everything's going to be totally fleshed out. So that's understandable. I think uh, my bigger issue with the pilot, and this may be sort of a feature or a bug, depending on your perspective, um, comes with what I see as warring impulses within it. Um, in which you might reductively refer to them as kind of the Armstrong tendency and the McKay tendency, where I think McKay's tendency, well, rather start with Armstrong's tendency, which is, as we see over the course of the show, is this far more dramatic project which takes these characters seriously as people and wants to kind of understand the existential pain inherent to being in a situation where you are this super wealthy person who is miserable for reasons you can't articulate, um, which I see as, you know, sort of the major engine of the show. Whereas the McKay tendency is this agitprop dimension where, you know, as he does in the big short and vice, he's very clearly interested in articulating the ways in which a certain class of people have done damage to, you know, American society and to the the larger world. And in this show, in showing how the sort of misshapen personalities of the super wealthy can wreak this disproportionate damage. Um, the major example of that is in the baseball scene. But I see that impulse as being somewhat detrimental to what Armstrong is trying to do, because I think in that scene, it requires you to step kind of outside of this drama and, you know, watch him sort of make a point that sort of stops what I see as the show's actual narrative in its tracks for a moment. That's interesting. By the way, uh, I, I don't want to, this is slightly force of habit, but do you guys want to keep going in chronological pilot, like event plot point order? Or do you want to, because that's at the end. I have plenty to say about it, but I don't know if you want me to save that. For later, um, I, I think we can go, go ahead. We can go ahead and talk about that. I think you know from the episodes we've recorded so far, we've been pretty loose in terms of you know how sequential we cover things, okay. and also you know for the audience that's listening, if it's not clear by now, our attitude as far as spoilers for episodes that have not happened yet is officially uh, who care. Oh, okay. I didn't. I, I didn't know that. I'll be. I'll yeah, be a lot we're, looser. We don't care about spoilers. Oh, okay. Good. Um, <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, no, that, that that's a point I wanted to uh, definitely sound off on uh, regarding both the pilot itself, but also the politics of the show, which I think is, you know, we've already touched on a lot. I like the general, I don't like, I mean, I think the politics are really good and I don't, this can be a pedantic thing that I actually usually shrink from uh, a lot because now, um, you know, there's such a level of, discussion and discourse over the woke versus problematic elements of any given mo moment of TV. I'm not saying there's not merit in discussing those things at all, but um, just as a, a facet of the storytelling, being, you know, being right or being accurate or honest uh, or subversive in your treatment of politics, I think is an interesting aesthetic detail. So I, I think the show's politics are really good, uh, which makes sense because uh, the thick of it's were very good. Peep shows were uh, probably the the least um, relevant to the actual uh, show, but there were a lot of good moments in which uh, some some great comedy at the expense of you know uh, new labor or uh, or reactionary um, you know Tory uncles and stuff like that got to got to bubble up. And then Four Lions, I think the politics the politics are downright like impressive how he's able to weave them into 
uh, a, a story without, as you're saying with this pilot, taking away from any kind of uh, momentum or uh, initiative uh, and, and just having it be uh, a natural part of the, uh, the narrative and the storytelling. With that baseball scene, I uh, didn't mind it at all, and maybe I'm just a sucker for this side of things. I, 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 I like it. I, I, I think you need a moment like that, uh, even, even at that moment of the pilot, because as, as good as the show is at uh, sort of gracefully uh, painting the, 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 the implications of, of the politics of these characters and, and the broader world and lodging a critique of you know, not only the media industry, but the broader system and the social dynamics... I don't chafe at, at that at that moment where if these are all just like kind of rich kids who are having a decent time and uh, there's some family drama, but you know ultimately uh, that that's how families are, no matter what their income. That's fine, I guess. But the moment where Roman flippantly dangles that life-changing sum of money in front of that poor kid and his parents watching, and the kid, through no fault of of their own, botches it or loses out. And it's just this cruel. I, I watched the pilot with someone else, and they were like disgusted by it. And it is, it's, it's a disgusting moment. But you have, I think, you need that 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 uh, edge to the family that that makes you remember this is not uh, a bunch of people who are harmless fops. Like they're, it's a simulacrum of what they're doing by existing in general. They're dangling money in front of everyone else, saying you will never have this, no matter how m- m- meritocratic we pretend things are. And uh, if that was a McKay intrusion onto an Armstrong um, uh, story, I, I guess it's possible. But um, I was just going to say that whole subplot is something that is kind of missing for me a little bit in the rest of the series. We don't really get to see the knock-on effect that the Roys have as much. Um, I'm not saying it needs to be clobbered over the audience's head, but like, and, and I do think the last scene where it zooms out of their house, it's a little. Uh, it's a little kind of played out. I, I I like that you get to see their their apartment, but the whole like uh, cacophony of, of of news clips like over the skyline. It seemed kind of derivative. It reminded me of like network or something. But at any rate, as much as I love the rest of the show, I wouldn't mind a couple more moments like that where and may, maybe they'll do that in the second season where I don't know some 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 innocent person or some working person has to deal with the consequences of the Roy machine or of, you know, Roy's allies or his, um, his, his general, uh, oppressive existence. And I, I like it. I like that it's in the pilot. Well, I, I would say a couple things in response to that. Um, first, just to address that final shot, irrespective of the audio montage or the news clips that you reference, I think that is actually a rare example the show really using an image to illustrate an idea where usually it's using the dialogue and the characters to do that Mm. um, where uh, it sort of uses this very vertical illustration Mm. of wealth inequality where they're living in this kind of you know, low-rise apartment building against the dramatic, uh, luxurious sure. New York skyline. Um, it may be sort of played out, um, but it's not something I think you get enough of on the show. And yeah. the other thing I would say is that as far as, you know, having that scene in there to illustrate the impact of the character's actions on, you know, sort of the unseen people in this world, I think you're right that it's useful for it to be in there for the series. I 
don't know that it helps the flow of that episode in particular is what I would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's very deliberate um, and it's definitely useful for it to be in there because the, sh- the, the season is actually bookended. If you think about the way the season ends with these very dramatic examples oh, yeah. of how the Roy's actions uh, affect, you know, as we say, these kind of unseen people, the season ends with a much starker example of that. The Chattanooga moment. The Ch- Chappaquiddick. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Chappaquiddick. Can you definitely edit that? Yeah, that's a uh, that's that, that's a great point. Um, I, I, I guess what I mean is that the horrible, horrible casualty of Kendall's like addictive personality that that's, you're right. That is another moment of it. And I, I, I guess that'll do, I, I sort of meant the non-individualistic reasons that, uh, people suffer, you know, cause that's sort of like, I mean, it could have been any cokehead who got into his car and and caused him to crash whereas not a lot of uh uh people could have dangled that check you know um in in front of that 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 family that literal yeah. poor family but yeah you're right i mean they 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 don't forget that you it's true and and that is the climax of the first season so um i sort of take that back i guess well and we'll and we'll get to this when we discuss that episode but the other thing that happens in that finale is that Logan, uh, in this uh, nice bit of foreshadowing, uh, when the waiter pisses him off, says to somebody else, I never want to see him again. And he literally, like, banishes him from existence yeah. in that moment. Like, he wishes him into the cornfield, you know? Which is uh, just a little uh, t- tiny connection to the thick of it, I think, in the very first episode of that show. Hugh, the original uh, minister for social affairs, says, I'm, I'm sick of my driver. He's always smirking. I think he's smirking at me. And I, I, I don't want to ever see this driver again. And uh, there's something, I think there's a little bit of an echo there. That clearly Armstrong is in touch with these people, uh, these people's ability to, as you say, banish or control, alt, delete anyone that they don't want to see every day for, for no good reason. Oh, yeah. And that happens on, um, uh, that happens on Veep, too. I'm thinking of, um, God, what is it, season four, where she's got some speechwriter who's just, like, you know, unceremoniously fired and, like, literally never seen again after, like, two episodes. Mm. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's that's definitely a recurring theme of just, like, yeah, the disposability of, of certain people. You're right. Uh, uh, but, yeah, so as, as, the, as the political uh, undertones of the show uh, goes, I, I think they're... I think they're really great. There's one, this is kind of in a future episode, so it's just a, a stray remark. The one thing, the one thing in the show that I find a little forced, actually, before I say that, I'll say what I love about the show is that they don't ever mention Trump. Yes. That, uh, of course, there's this whole episode where Logan is meeting with the president and we're clear on the fact that he's a Republican and that he's some kind of clown because Logan yeah, keeps... California Raisin, yeah. Well, he says California Raisin, but... I don't know if that's because he's literally from California or because he looks like a California raisin. I think it's ambiguous enough that it, it could very well be Trump or it could be someone analogous. But I love that they don't do that because yeah. you can just so easily imagine a Sorkin or fucking Josh Whedon style show where, you know, it turns out that Logan is like 
collaborating with the president to do Russia Gate, and that it all you know I'm not I'm not even kidding like I think you can totally imagine that that's like you know even good writers would be like well we have this is where we got to go with it you know this is what we this is the drama that people think of when they think of right wing oligarchy you know in the country but they don't they they don't mention him and I think that's that that's really great and it, the reason would clearly be because they don't think as awful as Trump is in line with any left critique is apart from a couple very specific and important issues that we shouldn't dismiss. He doesn't change that much about the way the system works. Um, and so why would he change, uh, if anything, the way that a Murdoch or Redstone type families world work? That, that's a, that's a very great omission that I'm glad they don't get all hoity toity about And instead they have a much more interesting real, real world stand in, in the form of the Bernie Sanders Gil uh, Evis character, and I think that's a recognition. They think Trump is not terribly new, but this type of political figure is kind of a f- breath of fresh air, and we want to play around with how he exists in this uh, universe we've built. And while I like that a lot, and I love, um, is it Eric Bogosian who plays the Bernie Sanders? Uh, yep. Stand-in? He's really great. I remember when he was uh, in the Larry Sanders show, I think it's the last time I, I saw him in like a show that I like. He's really great. The one thing I think is a little forced is just that um, the idea that a that he's at war with Fox News is his like primary like you know thing. I, I think that's a little. I understand it. It's not the worst you know way to integrate him into the world ever. Obviously, like Sanders doesn't really talk about Fox News that much. He's mostly talking about actual commercial and industrial yeah. oligarchs rather than media. But you know, it, it, it's it's fine. And then the idea that like if that character is the populist left winger that he would even really let Shiv be a part of his campaign in any way, shape or form. I, I don't really buy that, but it's enough of a funny and kind of exciting subplot that I, I don't uh, think it's, it, it, it's a huge travesty, but otherwise I think the show's politics are, are, are pretty amazingly woven into the storytelling. Yeah, yeah Brendan, I just I just want to say that uh, unfortunately for you, the anti-Trump version of this show does exist, and it's oh. called The Good Fight on uh, CBS All Access. Is that related to uh, The Good Wife? Yeah, yeah, it's The Good Wife. Yes, Christine uh, Baranski. Wow, where, I will make sure uh, never. John, oh. John Cameron Mitchell plays Milo and all this stuff. Oh no! The the best part, <laughs> um, and I don't know if you ever got to it, Brendan, is they have. A, she listens to a podcast, Christine Baranski listens to a podcast, Diane Lockhart, called Potting on America. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I that's where they're, like, they're one season away from bringing the Chapo guys in. They're, they're so <laughs> No, close. totally. They it got, got so bad the third season. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, no, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually have any examples. I thought to, to say that thing about Trump, cause I don't know like what, I, I don't watch a lot of TV, even incredibly good shows like this. It takes me like a year to get around to watching them. But I, I imagined there had to be some, uh, version of, of, of that happening. And I, I actually, in that review of vice that you mentioned very generously, I recently saw the, like a Broadway version of network. To bring up Network again. It's a great film. Oh, yeah. Uh, and boy, oh, boy. I, I like Cranston, too, but boy, oh, boy. It's not his fault. Yikes. What a travesty of just turning a, a great, uh, sharp, and timeless critique of capital and, and media into this anti-Trump 
like uh, almost like Biden-esque bromide for, for two and a half hours. It was really awful. And if they can do that to network, you know, they can do it to anything. So I'm, 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 I'm confident succession won't go down that road, but if it does, that'll, that'll be when we know it, uh, it is, it's, it's starting to lose it. Cause I really love that they completely kept all of that out of, of, of the first season. Yeah. And I think one way it could use, I think a little bit more of that McKay energy is to get a little bit more specific about the way these companies work, you know, rewatching it for this show has illuminated, I think, for example, the way that they really subtly, but carefully weave in details of how like ATN, the Fox news equivalent is also run as kind of this abattoir of sexual coercion, um, yes. akin to, to Roger Ailes. Those details are all absolutely there out bringing in anything so obvious as, you know, a big fat guy who's an Ailes equivalent. Sure, sure. Just quickly, Regil, and on and, and your two points about him, I think I agree that it's kind of weird that his focus seems to be like media conglomerates, and there might be a function for that because the show is political, but it tries to be vague enough so as not to kind of like elicit strong emotional reactions or really get like deep into ideology. I think what the show does well and what its purpose is, is to pathologize wealth above mm-hmm. anything else. Yes. Um, and so I think the focus on like, yeah. And, and I think there was a funny moment in actually the pee scene when Logan gets the bag of pee and they call him like you monopolist scum. And I'm like, yeah. who would say monopolist? Like, you know what? Though? <laughs> I bet there's a couple pedantic, you know, God bless them, but I bet there's a couple pedantic uh, Antifa people who might be heard to say something a little, a little like, uh, like even like capitalist or Matt Faller. Much more realistic than monopolist. Like, no, who's like saying monopolist? Yeah, I, no, Kate, you're right. I think that was Matt Stoller or Matt Matt Stoller uh, being given a cameo in in that scene. Yeah, that absolutely. <laughs> Nonstop screaming about monopolies. Yeah. No, so, you're, you're yeah, right. And, and you're then right. the other point about Gil, like, bringing on Shiv, I think another smart thing the show does, that it does enough to distinguish Gil's bio and background from Bernie that, yeah. like, we're not hung up on that. Like, he has this wife who committed suicide. Like, that's a huge yeah. difference there. I think that, again, the whole point is to pathologize wealth. So insofar as this character uh, is working with, decides to work with Shiv Roy, we see him kind of eventually succumb again to that allure of power. And so it's more of a commentary again on just how wealth, you know, corrupts and um, it's sort of pathological aspects, which I think the show is aiming for and doesn't want us to get too mired in, um, you know, thinking, oh, is, is that supposed to be a Murdoch is that a charm. sure sure um, it lets us kind of fill in the gaps and yeah. um, instead sort of get to really more of like the emotional core of what's driving decisions and the darker relational and family elements yeah. um, and the humor that that drives the story forward so I, I'm glad and I hope that they don't go to you know on the nose with anything political I, I don't think they will I think they'll be smart enough but yeah. again I'm not like as well versed on the politics of Armstrong or mckay as you guys are i i just i i just hope that they bring in a a hot beto type character in this <laughs> we can all yeah, i wonder if there's gonna be like a campaign subplot I oh guess. well i think there is with uh connor <laughs> i'm so excited for that i think everyone's pretty excited for that. so excited Connor's for that. rich guy libertarian politics 
I also just want to say really quickly on the baseball scene, as I rewatch it, um, I think it's important to talk about the baseball scene because clearly viewers had like a very visceral reaction to that scene. I'm, and I, I watched this pilot at least like 10 times just because I watched it several times on my own and then, you know, rewatched it for the podcast. And I also watched it with people that I wanted to introduce the show to. And pretty much like everybody who I've talked to either on Twitter or in real life that I've told to watch the show or watched it with really found that scene unbearable. And some people couldn't go on after that, or it just really colored their view for the rest of the show. So I think it's important to bring up. It didn't bother me personally because I've grown up around that kind of gross, gratuitous preening of wealth and power to some extent. And so I wasn't surprised by it. Like it was without a doubt cringeworthy, but I thought it was essential to kind of, you have to feel a sense of discomfort with the implications of what these people are involved in. And like, I think from the get-go, you know, you have to kind of (laughs) prime people for what it is we're dealing with here, which is like very deeply disturbed people. Um, People who grew up in a a gilded cage to pull uh, Mm. a term from Brendan's wonderful article. Um, And this scene was viscerally painful for people to watch. I get that. Like you said that, you know, the show could have maybe used some more of that throughout um, to kind of hammer home the repercussions of these people's behavior and and their business. But I think it was needed. And I think I'm hoping that people who are listening or haven't watched the show or or on the fence about continuing... um, um, keep pushing through because that's it's a really important commentary of the hollowness of these people and you know i, I think to establish that in, in, a, in a powerful emotional way early on yeah it's important and i don't think it's out of character yeah. of roman by the way i like i i think it's no, not if, at all i mean i know people would do like it. roman and it's so realistic like i've yeah. seen people do dick shit like that people who have money and who are insecure it's painful but it's like it I, I mean, it's it's so on point, and that's what the show gets so right about people with money. I think if it makes you uncomfortable, like, good. It's supposed mm-hmm. to, right? Like, that's what the show is, like, you know, wants you to face. And But I think it gives a miscue about what the show's project is in that, you know, like Brendan Jay said, you know, we don't see many more scenes like this, you know, I think that it kind of sets the viewer up to feel like there are going to be a lot of moments like that. And, and as you've mentioned, you know, at its core, it's really sure it shows how wealth uh, is corrupting in particular, you know, how one family's wealth can corrupt entire cultures, but at its core, you know, it's a show about family and the 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 dynamics there. I I don't know. I just feel like it kind of sets the viewer in the wrong direction, and and that's why why a lot of people kind of had issues with it. I think simply is evidenced by the fact that so, I mean, at least anecdotally, that so many people dropped off after the pilot and only picked it back up later. I think you would have to be correct, Kate, that, yeah, it does lead people to kind of expect the wrong thing from the show. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I don't want to bash Adam McKay on this because there's a lot of things I like about what he does. Um, But you might get the expectation that 
you know, every episode is going to be like this where they're just going to be doing awful things to uh, less fortunate people. And that's going right. to be kind of hard right. stomach. I also sure. think that's really interesting if you think about it in the tradition of kind of what you might call, you know, grim and gritty anti-hero TV, where, you know, the big trend of sort of the mid to the mid aughts to the mid teens in cable drama was anti-heroes doing awful things and getting away with it. And, you know, those shows, a lot of those shows becoming quite popular that the thing people couldn't stomach was this, <laughs> um, I think is just kind of interesting um, and not, you know, any of the things that, uh, you know, Walter White gets away with or the Game of Thrones crew get away with that kind of mm. thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's too, I, I guess maybe as Gabby was saying, it's, it, it doesn't take place as, as great of a show as Breaking Bad is, uh, no comment on Game of Thrones, partially because I actually I genuinely haven't seen it. I, I I'm not into that kind of stuff anyway. But I also Kate just and haven't I seen have it. not watched Game of Thrones either. So, but I know that it's it's it takes place with goblins. So like it's a goblin show. It's not it's not anywhere near reality. So like and Breaking Bad, as great as it is, is kind of a heightened reality. I mean, there's all kinds sure. of stuff uh. in that show that is that is or at least i still like the show but it's 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 a heightened reality uh in a lot of ways with that kind of you know magnolia style plane crash and it's it's almost like a comic <laughs> book in, in a lot of ways so like yeah that's um yeah. that's a great that's a great uh yeah. parallel theater yeah so so this is something where you know walter white can you know like uh do some two-minute prison stabbing uh you know uh operation and and everyone can kind of drink that down quite easily but this is based in so much more of a visceral grounded recognition of not to get pedantic or sanders-esque but about inequality and you know just the privation and and the disgusting uh weird incestuous world that deprives most people of a decent life and so I, I think it's an interesting point to say that it, it gave people the wrong idea of the show. That's probably that's probably true in some cases. That yet, maybe there was a better place to put it. But I I, I gotta say, I, if it was effective, I think that's a good thing, and and I'm I'm glad it's somewhere in the show. Yeah, and I think implicit when, uh, for at least for me, when I criticize something like that, that's not to say it should be totally removed or it should be somewhere else, etc. I'm just commenting on you know what the effect that it has on the viewer um as as it stands um which is i think an interesting mix as we've explored here just on the point of uh, the dialogue i think one thing that really sets the show apart from at least it initially did for me from any other given you know one family trying to keep their empire together and blah blah blah. like that's I, i i like you guys mentioned i think that's what a lot of people saw in the trailer and it is like a great farce wrapped in a prestige family empire drama. I think what cut through that cliche immediately for me was just the wonderful, and again, Armstrong uh, deserves credit, the, the wonderful writing and, this, and, and the sketching of the characters. One thing that I think is really great and challenging is that uh, in spinning out these uh, wonderful you know, insults or nicknames or turns of phrase, you actually also have to walk a line because a lot of these characters aren't actually terribly smart or clever. And y- you, you have to be careful not to put, maybe I'm just saying this as a writer, but like you have to be careful uh, not to put something too smart or funny or literate in the mouth of Tom 
what's his name uh what's his last Wom's name Wom's Gans yeah like you want to give him funny stuff and you want him to one of my favorite lines in the series is did you bitch me out pig man when he's yelling at a <laughs> that's like a wonderful wonderful like uh, uh outburst but but you have to find a way to like get all these great Armstrongian lines to, to make the show really funny in without sort of um making the characters too amoebic where they could suddenly go from being a total dunce who doesn't know how to handle X, Y, or Z, or Ronan or Roman is too cocky and impulsive. Suddenly, he's sounds like he's you know taking his brother down for in, in some incredibly brilliant and and uh, and mature and well-read historical you know insult or whatever. Like the, the writing staff does a very good job of keeping the characters as individuals while also letting that really, as as I may have said before, sparkling dialogue happen and i i really appreciate that about the show because because in like a sorkin project or a josh whedon project everyone basically ends up sounding the same they're all super clever and you know in addition to the humor i think being kind of lame and just a lot of like uh how about no uh stuff like that it's it this is uh, another level of comedy but it's also a much more finely crafted way of injecting um funny lines and and great tirades into the uh, the action. Well, it certainly helps when you don't care about your characters being liked uh, or admirable, because I think some of the funniest lines on the show, the comedy comes from it's something that that character thinks sounds clever mm-hmm. or cool. There are lines where I'm thinking of Kendall saying, uh, I think in the pitch meeting with the uh, startup, he goes, he says like fucking sweet chili sauce. Yep. And yep. Uh, the uh, the immortal uh, from episode three, uh, sisters doing it for themselves. Line. <laughs> um, yeah. And or e- even just the beginning of that board meeting in lifeboats when he gre- he gets all the staff together and he just says, "Yo, yep." <laughs> and 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 actually, also, I, I had a little echo of another Armstrong thing where when when Roman says, "Internet, uh, fucking game changer." <laughs> uh, that so good. That, that that is, and I don't mind it, but that is kind of a recycling of a peep show uh, moment where Jez and Super Hans are waiting to see if they got a record deal. Uh, and the, uh, the, uh, you know, the agent or whatever, uh, comes out and she's like, you know, a, a lot of, uh, what, 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 what bands need these days is a, is a strong presence on the web. And Jez, uh, turns to Super Hans and goes, you know, I, I told you, man, the internet's going to be fucking massive. I keep telling you this, like someday <laughs> it's going to be huge. And uh, I, I heard that immediately after uh, after Roman, you know, just completely uh, put the foot in the mouth during the uh, board meeting. And oh, yeah, a, I have, a, I have in... a couple little <laughs> details noticing, like, in the thick of it, they use Danes a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, as a verb. And, you know, there's that classic line where uh, Shiv says to Nate, she deigned to date him. Yeah. But Roman also says it in the episode Prague and also... The ketamine thing was in, well, not just the ketamine thing as if it's something, but ketamine also, like, was in a line in the thick of it. And, yeah, he yeah. has his little, his little tics and preferences and stuff that you'll see recur. But I, I don't mind them. It's, no, know, no. He recycles them because they're good. Yep. 
Absolutely. Just reminded me of, you know, another classic Sopranos line. Uh, I think it's when uh, Melfi is saying, you know, oh, you know, Meadow probably knows all about what you do. And Tony goes, fucking internet. <laughs> yes. But yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I just love, I, I really love the show for that. And, uh, and, and the, the, the wonderful, like, dialogue that actually does embellish characters and give them personalities while also being clearly from the same general well of swear words and and uh comedy stylings is it's it's a great thing to balance and it's so so much better than the absolute schlock that gets described as you know wonderful dialogue that jumps off the page in in most contexts in prestige tv or tv in general and it's 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 definitely a wonderful thing that jesse armstrong has gotten to to make his way, and and again, the people around him and the people who collaborate with him as well, they 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 get to do a show like this. Which I mean, you you compare it to Peep Show, which was just this tiny little Channel Four kind of you know uh, grainy little uh, mini DV looking ass show compared to what Succession gets to be with that lush score and these you know A list actors. It's uh it's it's quite nice. It's that weird thing where you're sort of like. I get this with Bob Odenkirk a lot where I'm like weirdly proud of him. Like I don't know him at all. And, and I, I wish I did, but, but the fact that he gets to go from being Stevie Grant and the Larry Sanders show, or just a writer on the Ben Stiller show to now being, I assume one of the most sought after and, and high paid TV actors and, and uh, esteemed TV actors in a great show. It's a similar kind of feeling. And so I, I, I I have a, another kind of personal warm feeling towards Succession for for that reason. Absolutely. Could I just in 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 tiny sentences just say things I loved because I just have yes. them. Yeah. Please. Uh, uh, I love Greg throwing up in the mascot outfit. Uh, that was really <laughs> funny. I love. Uh, I've already talked about Kendall's. You know, like saying "dude" and "let's fuck" in the beginning of the boardroom <laughs> thing. I love that. Uh, I love the business aromatherapy guy that Roman sends in before he actually is introduced. And I love maybe most of all these two moments with Connor, uh, his very first moment where he's describing to his niece or whatever, how the water wars are going to result in many, many deaths and that he has the water and he'll share it with her. That's amazing. Uh, uh, character moment. And then when he, he gives, uh, Logan, the, 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 the goo, the bread goo, that's one of my favorite things and they keep bringing it up and later in the episode when logan is trying to get them to sign the trust he's like i love the uh bread goo but the uh the trust is the real gift that's uh (laughs) those those like spikes in the pilot were what absolutely got got its hooks uh in me so i i i love all those moments very much yeah, and we didn't talk much about uh, Sarah Snook in this episode because I think she has more to do later. Um, but that's just a very, very good actor and a very, uh, very tricky performance and character um, that is maybe not as funny or fun to talk about as some of the other ones. Um, but I think rewatching this season, I have grown kind of more impressed with what she's doing. She's got some great lines. Uh, she's yeah. got in, in the pilot, the date rape by Calvin Klein is a great line, and she delivers it really well. Uh, followed by the "You wish?" like question mark. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and she's, she's I really wish. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's also Australian, which I didn't know. Uh, yeah, she was yeah. in this fantastic um, sci-fi movie with Ethan Hawke 
called Predestination, mm. um, which is based on the classic sci-fi story um, All You Zombies, which I don't know if you're familiar with, um, no. Brendan. Um, I, I, I actually, I, I want to walk that back and say I, I'm not sure how good the film itself is, but Snook is incredible in it. She plays a kind of dual gender-flipped role in it. Um, and I had never heard of her before when I saw that movie, and I was just kind of thunderstruck by that performance and like where she had possibly come from. So I was very jazzed when I heard that she was attached to this project, and yeah, uh, she's a part of it. And her her shitty uh, Bernie bro uh, fuck boy mayo boy Nate uh, Nate uh, <laughs> he uh, he's also Australian, which uh, oh. yeah 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 oh, he's wow. American Australian, but they're two Australians being being uh disgusting in the show yeah yeah they're pretty gross Brady and do a pretty good job with their accents i mean sometimes i feel like i can hear sarah's slipping a little bit but also it tracks because like their mom is british so right mcfadian i can't ever hear him slipping i i I, i'm amazed his accent work is unbelievable the thing he's doing um, yeah, where he's like trying to sound Midwestern, but also affect this kind of Atlantic thing at parts is really in- tricky and yes. really fascinating and funny. Yes. Brendan J. Yes. Very, very uh, critical question. Mm. What is your favorite episode of this season? Um, that's a good question. I, um, in a weird way, probably need to rewatch it to, to know more precisely what I think about the whole show because as you were saying, the second half is, I think Gabby said the second half is some of the best TV. I actually felt like I liked the first half more. Uh, maybe that was just because I watched it essentially all in one go and I was fatigued during the second half, but just like physically not going to sleep. But mm-hmm. I, I like the one where Tom finds out about the death pit a lot uh, because I like that whole character moment of seeing him confronted Suddenly not with like just buying the right watch, but immediately being thrown into covering up a giant Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein style mm-hmm. uh, cover up. And I remember liking that one a lot. People talk a lot about the Bachelor Party episode. I think that one's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I don't have a straight answer because I've only seen it once. Oh, you know what? I'll just go boilerplate and say that the boardroom uh, <laughs> vote one is just it's just got the the apex of the drama and then the apex of a lot of funny stuff in it too so i i'll yes. say that one for and the now the song I, I think the show changes a lot on a rewatch i mean like at this point yeah i've rewatched it an ungodly number of times but um yeah you should definitely rewatch it as our episodes are released and leading up to season two so. <laughs> oh yes you uh, can give us an, up, an update on your favorite episode yeah, no, de- definitely, definitely well, and I'm I'm excited to listen to the um the yeah, the, fu- the future episodes you guys do, and if if you guys are still doing it in the second, or you are obviously doing it in the second season, I'll be listening to it um as each episode comes out. Brilliant. I just so- want to add, Brendan J. It's it's almost as if we experience different shows based on how you described it, like when you were talking about the scene and uh, at the beginning with. Lawrence and him getting torn down the size and how much you enjoyed that Kendall mm. and very much did not have that takeaway. And just a, a, a bunch of moments that, you know, you described, it's just, um, I found it really interesting. It seems like, like I said, we were experiencing different shows. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Which is amazing, actually. Yeah. And no. we both came out on the positive end of yeah. it. Oh, and I mean, obviously, my uh, version is the correct experience. <laughs> That's right. But uh, I still no. I I I I I definitely enjoyed hearing what what you guys thought, and it'll go into when I inevitably uh, rewatch it. So uh, you know, I'm 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 even more excited to see in real time what happens in the second season as well. So yeah, it's no, it's a great. It's just it's a very rich show, so it makes it easy to have good conversations about it. Brendan, do you have anything you want to uh, plug before we wrap up here? Um, For now, um, uh, maybe buy the book I helped write a year ago. If you haven't already, it's coming out in paperback in October. You don't have to if you think I'm crypto fash, suck, dem, scum, who is uh, in it for some kind of uh, paycheck. But uh, if, if you don't think that, um, I did help write the book, and uh, I, I do enjoy how the book turned out. But otherwise... Um, I'll, I'll let you know, uh, further down the road when, when a couple projects have actually come out. Thank you though for asking. And we can find you on Twitter at, at deep underscore beige, uh, when, when you're on there, which is rarely. Sure. Courtesy of, uh, Jesse Armstrong, uh, that screen. <laughs> yeah. And the Roycast is online on Twitter at underscore the fly guys. We are posting memes, retweets there, etc., as well as up-to-date information about when these episodes will be released imminently. And uh, my co-host, do you guys want to give your your Twitter handles, or we can put this in the description or what have you? You can uh, at garbage Kate, <laughs> and uh, I'm at Gabriella. That's with a J, two L's. And I am at Brendanowitz. Not going to tell you how to spell it. Figure it out. I'm not going to do all the work for you, but it'll be in the bio as well. That is episode one of the Roycast. We've already recorded a few of these. Almost done with season one. Knock on wood. Find us online. Join the conversation. And uh, we'll uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again so much to Brendan James for uh, kicking us off with us. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brendan. Brendan, thank you. All right. Cheerio. Bye. Yeah.